Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Pacers Summer League action continues tonight at 7.30 out in Vegas. Not currently in Vegas is the television voice of the Indiana Pacers and Kristen Neri because he has got much more important duty like grandfather duty. Congratulations on the new addition of the family, my friend. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I'm multitasking today as I talk to you. Uh, yes, 11.33 last night, uh, our oldest son, Evan, and his wife, Meredith, had a uh, little boy. So it's our second grandson. Um, I'm not going to share his name yet because I haven't done it yet. I mean, I know the name, but um, but it, uh, yeah, awesome uh, down here in Myrtle Beach. And uh, so right now I'm in <clears throat> in the woods walking uh, their German short-haired pointer. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, in the woods has a consistent cell phone signal, and if you need kind of t- you know a, a moment for a breather, uh, just say the word. Uh, but uh, you know, we can we can always argue. We talk a lot about summer league for about like seven days, and it just kind of goes away, and we kind of like forget it almost ever happened. Um, what has caught your attention though, from the amount of names and faces that you'll be seeing starting in October that have been playing over the course of these first two games? Yeah, I've been very impressed with what I've watched. I've, I've watched both of the games. Uh, you know, fortunately, uh, ESPN2, the first game, NBA TV, and I think NBA TV tonight. Um, been very impressed with, really, uh, on the defensive end. And I think we all know from a, from a team standpoint, that's really where they, they want to and need to get better. Uh, but, I, I, you know, watching these young guys, uh, Jareth Walker, in that first game, you know, nearly had a double-double, had three or four blocks, three or four assists, and just very active. Uh, ben Shepard really shot the ball well in game two. And then, you know, the guys that won't play anymore, but I thought it was good for them to play the first couple of games, and that's Benedict Mather and Andrew Nemhard and Isaiah Jackson. Just good to see those guys, you know, play confidently. Um, you know, they had some big leads. They Led by 20-plus in the first game against Washington. Uh, had a big lead in game two, won by a big margin. So, yeah, just good to see and, and good to see those guys have some chemistry together. This is a first-world problem to have. These are the problems you want if you're Messrs. Pritchard, Buchanan, Carlisle. But at the two and three position now, now you've got a combination of Buddy Heald, of Bruce Brown, of Aaron Neesmith, of Benedict Matherin, T.J. McConnell might get some minutes in there. Andrew Nemhard might get some minutes in there. How do you make all those pieces fit and try to keep everybody happy? Well, that, that's, you know, as, as Rick Carlisle has said, training camp doesn't start until October 3rd, so they have a lot of time to uh, talk about that. But you're right. There's a lot more depth on this team, you know, from 1 to 15 than we've seen the last few years. And, uh, you know, you, you throw out at the four position, you now have Obi Toppin. Right. Uh, you've got Walker. You've got Jordan Wara. Then at the five, you've got Turner, Isaiah Jackson, and Jalen Smith. But you're right. At the wing position, you're pretty deep. Um, Aaron Neesmith last year played a lot, a lot of the four. I mean, the, the, the Pacers went very undersized at that position. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it all shakes out. Um, you know, the good thing, Greg, about the regular season is in an 82-game schedule, you're playing three to five games a week. And you're going to have some injuries, sure. Um, those types of situations. So I think it's helpful to have 
um, you know, some depth and, and quality depth at those positions. So it'll be interesting to see how all that shakes out. You know, a lot of us have just kind of assumed that because you draft Benedict Mather in six, he's going to need to start. Um, and, and, and I certainly get that line of thinking. Um, but there is also something to kind of, hey, this is what he does, attack mentality. And there has always been a place in the NBA for guys that are scores off the bench and you go, listen, you're going to get 20 to 30 minutes a night. You get more towards 30s because the shots are falling. You're finding a way to go. Don't worry about elements A, B, and C your game. Just go score the basketball. So I guess Matherin specifically, are you kind of operating on the assumption he's a starter this year or – do you think maybe his true role is to be a guy that plays starters minutes but does so with an intact mindset coming off the bench? I think all coaches will tell you it's really who, who finishes rather than who starts. Sure. But we all know that sure. players love to hear their name in the starting lineup. Um, he did start at the end of the year. Uh, they made the switch where Buddy Heald was coming off the bench. I think really all you have to look at is somebody like Bruce Brown, who last year did not start for the Denver Nuggets but was the sixth man and we can make a real argument that they don't win the title sure. uh, without somebody of his quality. So I, I, I agree with you um, that, you know, you can come off the bench and be highly effective. And that's what Matherin was last year. I, I would think right now I would, I would pencil him in as a starter. Uh, just I think that's maybe where they want to go. But, uh, again, um, you have so much depth there that you'll just – It'll be something to, to watch how the coaching staff operates. Again, Chris Denary, television voice of the Pacers, granddad and dog walker, joining us here on the Fan Midday Show, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Um, obviously, you're not seeing these guys 82 games a year, but you've seen Obi Toppin at least a handful of times over three years. You've seen Bruce Brown a handful of times over the course of the last four or five years. From From calling them from the other team's perspective, when those signings or trades were announced, what immediately came to your mind about their skill sets and what they bring to this team? Well, the ability to run the floor, Greg, and when you look at adding Toppin and Brown, you now have the top three players in the NBA from a transition standpoint. I think Halliburton was already there in, in leading the fast break and scoring off fast break opportunities, and now you have Toppin and, and Bruce Brown that, that do that as well. We had a chance to see Obi Toppin the final week of the year. The Pacers played the Knicks twice, and that's when Julius Randle was out with the ankle injury, and Toppin threw up some huge numbers. I mean, he was not getting a lot of minutes because he played behind Julius Randle, but when he did play, he was highly effective. Um, I remember Bruce Brown, you know, a number of years ago in Detroit and then had a, had a really good year in Brooklyn right. last two years ago and then, of course, signed the one-year deal with Denver. So... I just think the ability to get out and transition um, is, is so important. The Pacers were one of the best teams from a transition fast break status last year, and I think that will only get better with these two guys on the floor. Does part of you get a kick knowing you were here for the end of, of Rick Carlisle 1.0 and knowing how he played and how the game was played 18, 19 years ago and now looking at it and seemingly – he may almost want to score double the points he did when he was the coach the first time around 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about, uh, you know, my first year was 06, 07. That was Rick's last yep. year of his first stint. Yep. And you go back a few years before that, Greg, and remember some of those Pistons, Pacers, playoff games. It was first one to 80 like, if you were lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them were like 74 to 67 right. and 75 to 70. 
Um, you know, and that was a, it, it was a different league. It was a different way that they played. Um, I, I've said this, that basketball now is more of a motion game. And, and think back to how Bob Knight played many years ago at IU. It was, it was motion. It was pass, screen, cut away. You never, you never saw anybody put a screen on the ball. Now, what happens now, there's a lot of on-ball screens, as we know, dribble handoffs, that type of thing. But for the most part, it's read and react. And you put the ball in your players', in your players hands and make them read and react. So Rick calls very few plays now. And now he has a wonderful point guard in Tyrese Halliburton who can control things. So, you know, that's where scouting reports, practice, shoot-arounds, that's where all of that work is done. And then on game night, I mean, sure, Rick is coaching and his, and his staff is coaching, but so much of it now is giving the players the opportunity to make plays, and I think that's the biggest change that we've seen in the NBA over the years. I'll not ask you to, to make a, a specific thought or comment on, on a potential trade rumor, but but I guess just this. You alluded to the fact that a training camp doesn't start until October. Um, Pacers were trying to be as active as they could be before the draft made some pick trades, Was not, nothing would be a blockbuster variety. Clearly, you go out and get a, a couple of solid pieces in Brown and Toppin. But again, because of the glut of players now that you have, do you think another trade is in the works before this team really gets together in mass uh, come that first week of October? Well, I think there's always an opportunity. I mean, I, I think the one thing, you know, Kevin Pritchard sort of invented the word optionality, <laughs> and, and they had a lot of optionality going into the draft with five draft picks. It quickly became four. Um, so, no, I, I, I like the roster as it is, but they're always going to look to improve it. And I think, you know, where the Pacers are right now, they're, they're ahead of schedule, right? I mean, they won 25 games two years ago, 35 last year. And I guess the question is, can they go to 45? Now, you know, I think the East is very strong. Um, you've seen a lot of teams improve. So I, I think you always have to keep your eyes open to, to make your roster the best that you can make it. But they still have a lot of flexibility as far as contracts are concerned. Um, you know, a lot of they, they've talked about Bruce Brown, but you were able to really fit him in because – the, the salary cap in the CBA is different than it was a year ago. Yeah. Um, a, a year ago, you could hold on to your money till the end of the year, and that allowed them to do the extension with Miles Turner. The new CBA does not allow that. I think you have to spend 90% of your cap right. by the first day of the regular season. So um, I think the Pacers are still in good position. Uh, I like what they've done. I like the roster. and. Again, you, you never know uh, what's on tap. All right, how, how much longer of the dog walk do you have here, C.D.? You still in the woods? You back out to the highway now? Where are you at? I'm back out walking toward the golf course here. Of course you are. As, as, as anybody knows in Myrtle Beach, there's a golf course <laughs> right. like every block. And where my son and daughter-in-law live, uh, it's called Wild Wing. It's between Conway and Myrtle Beach. It's right by Coastal Carolina. Yep. So we are walking on the grass. Uh, Dutton is a two-year-old German short-haired pointer that needs to be walked. And he was waiting for me. I was running all kinds of errands this morning. We went and saw our daughter-in-law and son and our uh, new grandson early this morning. And then, uh, you know, we'll be back a little, a little bit later. But we're trying to help out and do as much as we can. And 
so that's that's where I am right now. It's it's good to walk. We'll probably walk. Oh, a couple miles, I think. And the weather in the greater Myrtle Beach area, just how hot is it in the middle of a day on Wednesday? Uh, It is very hot right now. You can probably (laughs) tell by my voice. Um, But it's funny, Greg, because last week we were in Michigan on our uh, usual family vacation with two other families. And uh, I hung out with my other grandson, who's a year and a half archer. And, I mean, we just had a blast. But it was probably in the 70s, and there was very little humidity. That is not the case today (laughs) at 1239 on a Wednesday afternoon. It is hotter than hot. Note to Evan, find a gig in Michigan if you can. The weather is better uh, come summertime. CD, I I appreciate you being with us, and congratulations to you and the family. I'm sure we will talk off air in the very near future. Take care of yourself, all right? All right, thanks, Greg. You got it. Kristen Airy, multitasking. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's Women's World Cup time are about to be, which means every four years we talk more women's soccer in this country on formats such as this. Someone that is talking women's soccer, men's soccer all the time because, well, it's been like her life since she was a student at Pike High School and then played in the uh, W League and the NWSL and now talks about it for a variety of outlets. I'm thrilled that she's got like 10, 15 minutes for us before she heads literally across the world to cover the World Cup. It is Lori Lindsay that joins us now. Hello, my friend. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. How's it going? I'm good. And, you know, having gone through this as a player, just thinking (laughs) another World Cup is upon us. What does that mean for you? Oh, yeah, it's um, incredibly exciting. And, you know, I was speaking with NWSL, like we did a staff thing, myself and Jackie Oatley, who I'll be calling the games with this morning for NWSL. And they were asking about the opening game, and it just takes me back as a player. And, yeah, this is the biggest sporting event in in soccer, but you can make the argument it's the biggest sporting event in the world. And we know this one is going to have a ton of backing, a ton of fans. It will be the biggest sporting event for women's forever and so i just feel incredibly grateful and so thrilled to be headed down under and calling these games and just reliving my playing days in so many ways and and i I rattled off a bunch of places that you have played you actually finished your career playing in australia uh so 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 what's it like to kind of go back there for the first time in some time yeah, it feels like, once again, it just feels like bringing me back to my playing days. Because as you mentioned, like I finished my playing career professionally here, uh, was done with the national team, so I went over there for my second six-month stint. And it, was, it felt like a second home when I was over there back-to-back for the two, six months. So to be able – and I haven't been back since. So to be able to go back in this uh, kind of capacity, there's a lot of my former teammates that I played with over there that will be covering – uh, the Women's World Cup on um, some aspect, one, some way, one or another, right? Like they're, they're either going to be in media myself or they are going to um, be playing. So to be, I've already talked to a lot of them leading up to this, and I'm just thrilled. It feels like a reunion of such, and, of such uh, by going back and being close to 
so many of them that I spent special days with. Listen, there there are 24 time zones across the globe. That's kind of the way it works. Um, I almost kind of break it down into thirds. There's like the Western Hemisphere that we live in. There's the European uh, slash African and then like the Asian Australian. So if you're going to rotate this tournament as you should uh, across the planet, you're going to have this from time to time where, where yeah. some fan base is going to have to get up in the middle of the night to watch their team play. No one ever complains about visiting Australia or New Zealand, but knowing the match is going to be late night or early morning, just your thoughts as to kind of how that affects this World Cup for those of us trying to watch from the States. Yeah, I actually think it makes it more exciting. It's like we're fans of football, right? We're fans of soccer. We've seen this in, what was it, 2002 for the Men's World Cup. Uh, yep. So it's just, you know, get up, enjoy the games, whether it's late night, whether it's early morning. And I, I think it adds to the excitement because you're kind of like, oh, this is the long days. It's, it's in the summer for us, right? And it's, they're going to be dynamite games. There's going to be some really, really good matchups. And I think, yeah, as I mentioned, I think it just adds to the kind of the wildness of the World Cups in general. So I'm here for it. I hope the fans are too. Yes, it adds a little extra something uh, in terms of having to wake up, but come on, do it. Here we go. Let's have some fun with it. All right. So uh, I was very proud of myself in 2002 when USA beat Mexico in the round of 16 in the Men's World Cup. I was living in an apartment at the time, and I think I only woke up my neighbors once, and it was a 5 (laughs) a.m. kickoff Eastern time. So I was was A, A, happy that I watched it live, and B, uh, I was not kicked out of the building for screaming uh, during the course of, of that match, which is a good thing. All right, so um, we've talked about this kind of big picture in 2015 and 2019. The U.S. has been the best, but the world is catching up. Well, now because of the investments in 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 Europe, other parts of the globe in terms of women's professional leagues, is there still a gap between the U.S. and everybody else, or officially have other nations caught up now? Oh, officially. I mean, that that conversation, in my opinion, has been long gone. Okay. I mean, we see established leagues. We see uh, England, you know, winning the Euros last year in the fashion that they did in front of their home um, home crowd. So, yeah, that conversation is long gone. I think, yes, the U.S. are still the favorites because we are number we're ranked number one in the world still. Uh, but you know, in these types of tournaments, it's. Um, kind of about, it's like the smallest details, right? It's about managing your emotions. It's about getting a little bit of luck. It's about building momentum. I think the one thing that is exciting for the U.S. at this point in time, when you think about a little bit of luck on your side, because everyone needs that, is when you, and I'm not discounting anybody on um, on our side of the bracket, but when you kind of look at the picture as a whole, yes, in general, um, our our side is, is favorable. And when you have 32 teams, this will be the largest World Cup that the women have ever had. There'll be some, you know, there'll be some gaps in some of the teams, but you still have to get the job done. You still have to take game by game. And that's what's going to be about for the U.S. is like, you know, some games are going to be a grind because that is the tournament in general, just with the length of it. But taking game by game, showing up with the intensity that we know that the U.S. can have and riding some of those waves and also just uh, managing the emotions throughout. That means the days off and uh, during game day. So I'm always rooting for the U.S. I think I think this is a, a tournament that we can absolutely win. And there's a, a ton of other teams, though, that can win this as well. Every, 
Every team, Lori. I'm sorry about that, Lori. Yeah. Lori Lindsay joining us here. Greg Rakestraw with you, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. There, Every team is dealing with some level of injury. There are, there are other nations besides the U.S. that have key players that are missing this tournament. It's just yeah. the nature of, of any sort of international event. That being said, um, there might be three or four different starters on this team were it not for injuries. Just how different would this team look in a perfect world where everybody's healthy coming in? Well, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, you make a great point, and that's across the board for a lot of these teams, just the growth of the sport, the amount of games that uh, all of these players are playing now. Uh, and, and we see this on the men's side as well, right? Key players missing because of injury. But with the U.S., yeah, I, I mean, listen, one of the things that we have that is always talked about is our fitness levels and our depth. And it's hard to believe that if you add four more starters on this, the depth <laughs> that that increases even further, right? So, um, yes, I just think that, you know, when you look at a player like Mallory Swanson, who would have, you know, arguably the most informed player in the world sure. at the time before she went down, that's a huge loss in terms of goal-scoring ability. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, this would have been her fourth World Cup. The, you know, the link that she has between Blackland and Asi, the head coach, and the players, and just the leadership that she brings, plus the composure and the experience she has on the field. I mean, these are huge losses that are irreplaceable for, for these, our team. But, as I was saying, we have depth. So the team does look very different, and also you have players that are able to step up, and this is their opportunity, and that's sometimes when you have even more favorable results at times because you have players that are digging deep in a different way. They're like, I have to prove myself, and not better or worse, right? Again, irreplaceable, but that this is when stars are born, when you have players that need to step up and make the most of their chances and can win you a tournament with their opportunities that they're being given. There are 14 players that will make their World Cup debuts coming up in nine days, if, assuming they all get in the match, 14 new players on the roster of the U.S. Women's National Team. Who will be kind of the breakout star, you think, of that group? Oh, I think there's a there's a number. And it's hard to say breakout stars because a lot of them have been performing sure. in our league for a few years. But worldly, worldwide, the three that come to mind right away are Lynn Williams, who will be making her debut at the World Cup. She played in the Olympics, but... She's been lights out for years in our league. Uh, Trinity Rodman, a bit of a younger superstar, scored uh, two goals in just our last match against Wales on Sunday, heading into this tournament. And then Sophia Smith, who all three of them front runners, very different players. But I think all three of those players, given the opportunity, whether they start, whether they come off the bench, uh, will cause problems for the opposition and will certainly put the rest of they'll put themselves on notice for the rest of the world like they are extraordinary players i know netherlands is in the united states's group and obviously uh, they played a rather important match the last women's world cup um who is the one team that you think is most on usa's radar heading into the tournament well i probably changed that conversation or that question just a little bit because i don't i think that the very first game is uh which is vietnam right sure yep. yeah um is is on their radar because these tournaments they're even though there feels like sometimes gaps in between right like this is a game that we should go in and we know that we can win it's still the first opponent so that's who's most on their radar because there's such fine margins anything a call could go against you so it's about taking one game at a time. So that would be who's on their radar right now. Uh, as a, God bless Wikipedia, because I can reference specific. <laughs> I, I remember you playing for the women's national team, but I yeah. can literally say you played in one match against Colombia. 
Yeah. When, 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 which is, you know, you are in the point zero zero one percentile being able to say, <laughs> I played in a women's World Cup. When I yeah. say, what is your immediate flashback? If I ask you to think back to that match, what immediately comes back to your mind? Yeah, somebody stepped on my shoe. Um, a Colombian player stepped on my shoe and took my cleat off. And I was like tracking back. I don't know if we can pass on here, but I was hauling ass back, Greg, to like to track back defensively right before the whistle blew at the end of the first half. And I remember having to like run the other entire way to get the cleat before I went into the tunnel for halftime. But uh, no, I just remember the celebrations. Again, it was about taking one game at a time. And uh, Megan Rispino scored a great goal. Uh, Heather Riley scored a great goal as well. I can't remember who had the third, but it was it was a really complete performance for our team that um, set us up for the success for the rest of the, the tournament. By the way, hauling ass is perfectly fine uh, in, in this format. <laughs> Lori Lindsay joining us here. Greg Rakestraw, it's 93.5 and 107.5. The fan, a couple quick things, and, and then we'll let you go. Uh, okay. Since you brought up Megan Rapino, and, and if you know when you have a conversation about Megan, you rarely limit it to soccer. Um, but sure. but in the parlance of just as a soccer player, we all knew this was going to be her last World Cup. We now know this is going to be the, the the end of her career, at least at the end of the NWSL season. What sort of group, you know, I wouldn't say rating, but but placement like of, of the all time soccer greats? Where does Megan kind of fit in strictly as a soccer player? Iconic. Iconic, because as you mentioned, we can talk all about um, the work that she's done, the activism sure. work, public speaking outside of the game. That also involves the game, right? And pushing the game forward in so many different levels. So on, I mean, you just have to think of the 2019 World Cup. That team uh, defied the odds in so many ways. Players, you know, pushing the boundaries. Pre- former President Trump tweeting at the team, tweeting at Megan, uh, you know, almost going against the team in some ways and Megan ice in her veins stepping up hitting penalty kicks when it needed it most and I think that because soccer yes is about your ability on the ball but it's also about understanding the big moments and I mentioned managing emotions early on and Megan can do that she understands what those little details mean and I don't know if we've seen a player step up in the moments when so much pressure is on a team, on an individual, more than we did in that 2019 World Cup with Megan. All right. Um, Non-American player or team you are most looking forward to seeing uh, down under and in New Zealand? Yeah, I would say there's two. Marta, because when you talk about icons and legends in this uh, this game, along with Megan, you think of Marta. She's playing um, in her final World Cup as well. Whether she'll be a starter or not, she'll still play a huge and a pivotal role for Brazil. Brazil, to me, is a favorite. They, all of the players that play here in our professional league, the NWSL, the Brazilians that do are in excellent form. Pia Sudage, who is their head coach, was our head coach at the 2011 World Cup. Uh, and so she knows the, there's just a plethora of experience for her as a coach at the international level. So she'll have this team firing on all levels. But March is one of them because of what she's done, both on and off the field herself. And I think there'll be a bit of a messy effect with Marta, with her team wanting to do all that they can, knowing that the position that they're in, potentially to go far in this tournament, if not win themselves. And then also Sam Kerr, arguably the best number nine striker in the world, home uh, you know, playing for Australia, it's a home World Cup. That is something that a lot of players never experience in their lifetime. There'll be 80,000 fans in front of their uh, first game against Ireland, which I'll be on that call. And 
it's a special moment. And for Sam Kerr, who's in the peak of her career and the goals that she scored, I think she has the ability to lead this Australia team far in this tournament as well. You will be nowhere close to Indianapolis uh, in the next <laughs> month. Uh, how often do you have a chance to make it back home these days? Well, you know, fairly often, actually. Uh, two, two things. My, my sister and her husband and their little boy live in Carmel. So I get back to them. And then my dad, actually, we, we lost my stepmom just a year ago, and they were living in Florida. And so he's moved back to be closer to family as well. So more and more, I will be getting back to Indiana, which I look forward to. Well, please, next time you are back this way, which you know won't be at least till the end of August, maybe even like the end of, of the MLS season, uh, please give me a heads up so I, I can, uh, you know, uh, treat you to a meal, treat you to Indy 11 game, and just catch up and, and, and kind of talk shop with you. Would love to have the opportunity to do that in person. Where can our viewers see and hear your work during the Women's World Cup that starts next week? Yeah, excellent. And I'll take you up on that because I would love to get to an Indy 11 game. I haven't been able to to get to one, and I'm a, I'm a fan. So, yes, let's make that happen. Yep. Um, but they can all the games for the U.S. will be on Fox, or Big Fox or FS1. You can catch those. And then you can follow me at Lori Lindsay. That's L-O-R-I-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-6. That's like on Instagram, that's on Twitter, that's on What's the New Threads, so across the board of social media. Awesome. Lori, safe travels. Thanks for the time and the insight. We'll catch up real soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. You got it, Lori. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Lindsay. You know, back in the day, we had a lunch hour sponsor. So we would, every time coming out of a break, you'd hear, welcome to Moe's. I'm sure we had Moe Agron at some point in time when that was the case, because we welcome him on the show right now. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Greg. What's going on? I appreciate uh, on a day where you've got at least three hours of yapping to do, doing at least 10 or 15 more minutes with me. Um, (laughs) And and I know you appreciate this because you have been a part of the Cincinnati media scene for some time. It has never been a better time to be you than it is right now. Is everybody in Cincinnati just kind of walking around smiling going, man, this is pretty cool given how every sports team seemingly is competing for a championship or at least better than they thought they were going to be heading into the year? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've compared it for me to the movie The Shawshank Redemption, right? (laughs) Where he crawls through 500 yards of God knows what and then he gets to the end. And he raises his his arms in triumph. That's kind of what it's been like here. You know, we've we've crawled through years of the Bengals being terrible, years of the Reds being terrible. You know, the, the soccer team obviously here is really good, haven't been around forever, but their first few years in MLS were a disaster. And now everybody's good. Heck, the University of Cincinnati is getting set to start its first season in the Big 12, so... Uh, it is. You're right. It's it's a fun time. It's it's fun to watch everybody have a good time, and 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 it's it's all happened, you know, so unexpectedly. You know, with with the Bengals, we thought Joe Burrow was going to make them good. Sure. We didn't know they'd be in the Super Bowl his second season. Reds lost 100 games last year, and for this team to be in first place at the All Star break by themselves, uh, I think if you would have said that was going to be the case back in March, somebody would have asked you to urinate in a cup. <laughs> the crazy thing about the Reds is that literally, and, and I had no problem with fans 
no showing, you know, making Great American Ballpark a witness protection program for the better part of a couple of years because they weren't getting return on their emotional investment. The crowds went from 3,000 to 30,000 overnight. It's like literally everybody saw Ellie play one time and said, okay, good, I'm in and, I, and I'm going. As somebody that talks about this daily, what was it like seeing that transformation literally in a matter of days? What was that like? You know, it's interesting because I was I was skeptical. Not not that if the team played really well, that folks would would start coming. But but I, I was skeptical that if they called up the younger guys, fans would come almost immediately. And yet, I mean, Ellie's first night against the LA Dodgers on a Tuesday night. Uh, that crowd was electric. I think the announced crowd was something like 26,000, 27,000, which for a Tuesday night for the Cincinnati Reds is an insanely good crowd. The thing that surprised me was the instant reaction to, to the guys they called up and, and, and to, the, to the just short-term success. Now that they're in first place and they had a 12-game a winning streak and they've got some guys who have very quickly become household names, I don't think the big crowds are all that surprising. They're certainly refreshing – and I could say the folks at Great American Ballpark would tell you uh, they have dramatically exceeded their wildest <laughs> attendance projections. But the, the the immediate turnaround is what, what struck me. The, the thirst to see some of these guys, like Ellie De La Cruz, but also Matt McClain and sure. Andrew Abbott, uh, I think has been interesting. I think the other thing with this team, though, is it's not just that they're winning. I think folks are drawn to this brand of baseball. And, right. Greg, I think you and I are – close to to the same age that the brand of baseball that i grew up loving saw stolen base be a thing saw teams take extra bases teams weren't station to station they weren't entirely built around the home run and the reds kind of embody what i think is the antithesis of what a lot of people have come to complain about modern day baseball being where it's it is two station to station teams are built around the home run and if they can't hit the ball out of the ballpark well they're screwed they're striking out a lot. This team's offensive execution and philosophy has kind of flown in the face of that, and I think that just aesthetically has made this team so much more appealing than a team that, if they were fifty and forty-one, got there on the strength of you know just hitting a bunch of home runs. Again, Mo Egger, ESPN fifteen thirty in Cincinnati. Our guest, Greg Rakestraw, fan midday show ninety-three five and one zero seven five. The fan to me. You know, baseball seeming these days is a mathematical equation. What what Ellie has been and and his teammates as well, it's been moments. It's been, oh my God, did you see that? Whether it is the triple for the cycle or obviously what the stolen base was and the steal of home on Saturday afternoon, they are things you can remember. They're things that aren't gonna be just lost, you know, to kind of the history. That, to me, is what's been so special about these last few weeks. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's felt like, you know, these last five or six weeks, there have been uh, a lot of games where the next day you said to whoever you were working with, to see that last night? Or these moments that you couldn't help late at night texting your buddies. Did you just see that? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, I mean – the, the, the Joey Votto two-home run game his first week back from the injured list. My favorite game all season was, we call it the Ricky Karcher game. Uh, a kid they called up, made his big league debut in Kansas City. They had kind of run out of relief pitchers. They're in this goofy guy with an ERA of nine at AAA, takes the mound, and he's got this weird grin on his face. And then he's throwing like uh, Ricky Vaughn in, in Major League, and, and yet somehow, some way. 
records the save, doesn't allow a run, and just the joy of that moment and the joy for him, you know, the, the, the headliners get all the pub, right, type players. But to have a first half the way the Reds have, you need a lot of contributions from a lot of different people. That night, they got a contribution from a guy that they have since DFA'd, and it was really, really cool. That has sort of been what has uh, defined this season. And, and look, I mean, I think the other thing uh, about this team is how they've done it in the face of what, what's been a major liability. You know, this is, this is a flawed team because their starting pitching is so bad. And, you know, we can obviously talk about whether their current model is sustainable in the second half of the season. But they've, they've kind of gotten by and won a whole bunch of close games and won a whole bunch of games where they had to come from behind because their starting pitching wasn't all that good. And I think teams that overcome their flaws – tend to be, you know, pretty endearing, and this team certainly is. The Red, the Reds have now been saying the right things in terms of the front office, like, hey, we recognize not a, it's not a complete team. We, we need to be buyers and not sellers at the trade deadline. Have they reached the point where there's so much young talent in the field, you can now kind of dip into the single-A, double-A, triple-A level and move some pieces to get back pitching? Have they reached that point yet? I think they've reached a point where they can deal from an area of surplus uh, because they have, you know, it's a nice problem to have. They have like a thousand guys who could play shortstop. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the name Noel V. Marte is going to be brought up a lot. He's kind of stuck long-term because of uh, Matt McClain and Ellie De La Cruz. I think the interesting name is Christian Encarnacion Strand, who is a player that they acquired last year at the deadline from the Minnesota Twins. He has shown prodigious power at Louisville. He's a corner infielder. Right now, there's nowhere for him to play at the big league level. I think it would be interesting to see if they would be willing to give him up. But look, I I keep making this point. I think we fall sometimes so in love with prospects that we just become attached to the point that you're unwilling to move on from them. The last time the Reds really went all in via trades was in 2012 for a team that won 97 games. And in order to get the pieces they acquired to put them in a position to win 97 games, they traded away four guys who would become all-stars. So (laughs) if you say you want the Reds to be aggressive, understand what that means. It means you rush to the front of the line with an offer that a selling team uh, cannot refuse. That doesn't mean you give away your fourth outfielder who nobody wants. That doesn't mean you give away... You know, the, the, the crappy bullpen guy that nobody wants. You're going to have to give up something of value. I think the good news is this team's got some guys that I think would be coveted by, by you know, teams looking to part with something. And I also think it's, you know, we, also, we often frame uh, the trade deadline activity as it's buyer dealing with seller. There's nothing that says you can't make a deal for a guy that's got a few years of team control that can help your starting rotation in exchange for an established big leaguer who can help the team that gets him in in the short term. So I, I think we we sometimes are a little bit too short-sighted in talking about trade deadline possibilities. Four years ago, the Reds traded for Trevor Bauer, not for the rest of the season they traded him for, but for the next year that he was under team control for. I also think there's a possibility they try to make a deal like that. But, look, it goes without saying, regardless of what direction they go in, the starting pitching has to get better. It has to get better with guys who are currently making up the staff. It has to get better with guys like Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo who are on the injured list right now. And it probably does have to get better via an outside acquisition. Hunter Green, uh, injury status. When's the next time we see him back on the mound? Well, they say they hope for August.
Okay. Well, August has 31 days, and there's a difference between hope and expect. So I don't know that there's a bigger storyline aside from what they might do at the deadline between now and whenever Hunter Green comes back than uh, what's his progress look like. The good news is this. His injury is not related to his arm. So, and you could say the same thing about Nicola Dolo, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to underscore or diminish the, uh, the the road back to getting those arms back to midseason form. But you have a pretty good chance of getting two high end fresh arms back in August, which is a pretty nice luxury if those guys come back. Mo Egger, ESPN fifteen thirty Cincinnati. All things Reds. One other topic I'm going to get to in a matter of moments here on ninety three five and one zero seven five. The fan. Uh, is it a no brainer that Joey Votto is playing next year for the Cincinnati Reds? I think it's a very interesting possibility. I think it's more of a possibility than a lot of folks would have been uh, willing to acknowledge before the season started. Look, uh, there is a team option for $20 million for Joey next year. I find it hard to believe that they're going to pay Joey $20 million next season. But uh, I think he would love to finish his career here. I know he has said that publicly. I think he is drawn to the quality of the club and the chemistry that they have built. I think there's value in Joey being on the team next season. And so I, I don't know. You know, we, we sort of framed this season for Joey coming into the year as pretty good chance it's his last. I, I would say that that's the less likely outcome. My guess is he is playing baseball for the Cincinnati Reds in 2024. Uh, but it, there's two and a half months left in the season. Joey has always said, if if I – if I'm not performing, if I'm not performing to the level that I expect, I'll walk away. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how he hits here in the final two and a half months. But certainly what we saw from him in the last week before the All-Star break was very encouraging. And, yeah, I, I think there's a, a better-than-average chance at this point that Joey Votto is playing baseball for the Cincinnati Reds in 2024, something that just a few weeks ago seemed like and a very, very strong unlikelihood. Uh, before we let you go, and we kind of painted the big picture as to why it's great to be Mo Egger today, throwing some skyline chili. The man is is absolutely in his perfect spot. But when, when FC Cincinnati first launched, and and and, and even in the USL Championship level, got these amazing crowds at Nippert Stadium. Part of it to me was like, well, because they're winning, because the Bengals weren't winning, the Reds weren't winning. Um, well, now those two two programs are winning. Obviously, it's more short term for the Reds. It's been more sustained now for the Bengals. But you've got this beautiful stadium. You're a top major league soccer, and oh yes, now this is becoming a destination for national team games. USA Mexico was there before the World Cup, and now you have it. You know, in terms of the Gold Cup quarterfinals, the U.S. and Canada playing on Sunday. So now that the Reds and Bengals are clearly on the right path. What kind of, of, of niche, hold, place at the Cincinnati sports table does FC Cincinnati have? Well, I, you know, I, I think there's a couple of different ways you can measure that. Uh, if you use their attendance, they're right on par because they pretty much sell out every game. Now, it's, it's about a 24,000, 25,000-seat stadium. It is a beautiful stadium. Uh, it's in an urban area. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's it's worth your time. Um, it's you know uh, maybe twelve blocks away from where the Bengals play, so it, there, there's a great environment. I, I I'm still of the belief that a lot of those folks who are going to games on a regular basis are there for the environment, sure. the stadium, and it helps that the team is winning. Are all those folks soccer diehards? Not so much. Um, in terms of of our show. 
you know, the engagement isn't quite what you would expect it to be, given how good they are. Um, you know, for me, I find myself always having to frame topics in a way that folks who didn't grow up playing soccer or even don't like soccer will follow along with. I think in terms of, like, recognizing the players on the team, you know, it's a town that has Joe Burrow and a town that has Ellie De La Cruz. Well, Matt Miazga and Brandon Vasquez <laughs> are not quite on that level, but... They have a very good on-field product. The team is very, very good. And relative to where this franchise was a couple of years ago, when it was a total afterthought locally and a bit of a punchline nationally, it's done a 180. They got a good club. They got a likable club. Uh, They're really being run by people who know what they're doing. And, um, they're certainly in the, the conversation of being the best team in the entire league. Mo, it's good to be you, my friend. Thanks for the time and the insight today. I appreciate it. Enjoy the show this afternoon. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And right now, Kevin Lee joins that. You'll be able to hear him in a couple of different forms on the podcast page later tonight because obviously trackside because of the All-Star game last night is this evening on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan, hello, my friend. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Greg? I'm good. When do you head north of the border for the weekend? Tomorrow morning. Lovely. How do, how do you like your trips to Toronto when compared to other stops around the circuit? Uh, I like it, although I would also say I think every weekend we have something unique and we always look forward to the weekend. That's what's good about IndyCar. And some of our our NASCAR friends are often jealous at the places we get to visit (laughs) rather than more likely than not in the middle of nowhere. So uh, now there are a few in the middle of nowhere, like mid Ohio, Iowa is a little bit off the beaten path, but we stay in Des Moines and Des Moines is a very underrated city. So uh, we don't really have any bad stuff. (laughs) America is the middle of nowhere. But the little village where the track is at is just an awesome summertime location. But Toronto is up there. You know, I've always kind of compared it to a clean Manhattan. That's not to denigrate Manhattan at all, but it's it's a lot of people. And it's difficult to keep things really tidy. And Toronto is just a friendly place. It's got so many uh, different unique types of restaurants. You can walk everywhere. Uh, you're right on the water, so it's a fun event. As a guy that has made his living largely, uh, kind of you know pedaling around street course circuits for the better part of the last 15 years or more, your thoughts about the ado that was made of NASCAR being in downtown Chicago a couple of weeks ago? It was great visuals. It was cool. But as somebody that's been there, done that in terms of street racing, what was it like to watch those guys attempt it and do it a couple of weeks back? Well, it was more about the exposure that you're going to get and the new eyeballs that you're going to get. So I get why NASCAR hyped that so much, spent so much money on it and invested in it. Now it remains to be seen whether that investment will pay off and they're able to come back, but they have set the template and they're going to have other opportunities um, with television rating that they had the highest other than a Daytona 500 in quite some time. You know, and as someone who is, and I like NASCAR, but I'm more biased towards the IndyCar sure. side. I'm I'm a bit sad that they've figured out our model uh, <laughs> that works so well. And people always say, why aren't there more ovals? Why are these street races? Well, because street races are an event. 
Ovals are one-day shows, and it's tough enough to get a big enough crowd on the oval to make it all work financially, but it's friends and family on Friday and Saturday at an oval race, whether you're talking about IndyCar or NASCAR. NASCAR does a little bit better with an Xfinity race, but you look in the crowd for that, and there's not many people there. Now, they have a television package that works, um, so that's what NASCAR was able to do, that the weather did not cooperate at all. Uh, and, and I'm not as worried about whether the track raced well or not. It was interesting. And that schedule is so long. Anytime you can make something unique, I watched it. I, I've made it a point to watch that race. And obviously, an extra 2 million or so people that normally watch did the same. So that's why it worked. And that's why you're going to see more of it in the future. From an IndyCar perspective, um, you know, we get to this point of the season, it becomes silly season in terms of, of drivers where we had already had some movement already, but we also have silly season in terms of, of, of venues. There seems to be some momentum, even if it's not during the, the season proper, even if, if it's non-points events, for potentially going overseas, down to South America, et cetera. Your thoughts on, on if that's going to happen, where's the first place we're going for that, Kevin? The first place that can write the check and guarantee that it's going to cash. I mean, honestly, that's yeah. what it's about. It, it is about a money grab, um, and that's important. Money is anytime you're uncertain why something is happening or is not happening. It's always money. Always start with money. Uh, and in this case, and, and Roger Penske's philosophy has been this doesn't really do a whole lot for us, but if you can convince him that it helps the series financially, is spread out amongst the teams then we do it. And the next problem is it's massively more expensive to do an event somewhere where you have to ship everything and, you know, the sponsorship doesn't really work. Uh, the time zone might not work. Now, the places they are talking about from a television standpoint, the time zones can work. If you're talking about Brazil or Argentina, Australia is back in the news, which is, does not work as far as a, a time standpoint is concerned. So I'll kind of believe it when I see it. But I hope. And they're talking about an exhibition after the, the championship is done because they don't want to, to crown their champion uh, at 2 in the morning. Sure. Uh, and but probably not outside of America anyway. And I'm not sure they really want to start the season there, although I, I think that can be debated. And they've done that before with Brazil. So, you know, I give it kind of a 50-50 type of thing. There are a lot of places that it look like it's going to happen. But you have so many different entities, namely governments, that have to be on board. And there are times there have been signed deals and the mayor, the governor, the president changes. And all of a sudden the cash flow stops and we don't end up going. So we hope it will happen. Kevin Milwaukee Lee. is maybe something domestically that I think has a chance sure. to be added to the calendar next year. And the, and the thing that, that really surprised, sorry to step on you there, Bubba, the thing, the thing that surprised me, um, and, and I was happy to hear, you know, the logic I'd heard beforehand is, hey, if we're at Road America, you can't be at Milwaukee. I love the fact that the guys at Road America is like, hey, we don't, that's fine. Put put a race at Milwaukee Mile. So I guess from a, a – and I realize your job is to cover the IndyCar series, not to be the PR guy from Milwaukee Mile. From a facility readiness standpoint, just how close are they at the mile to be able to host a major event like IndyCar? So I haven't been there for a while, but Roger Penske was there recently, and he said, I believe, that it's better – than it was the last time, but they're not quite there yet. So there would still need to be some financial upgrades uh, from a safety standpoint and otherwise to make it happen. Uh, but then, at the end, that comes down to money. They can invest that, but they need to make sure it's going to work. And what everyone would have to ask themselves is, why would it work this time 
when it didn't work the previous times. Sure. Because many promoters have tried, and it just hasn't gone well in recent years. What you do have is you have the idea of what you've done at Iowa and in St. Louis, and those have been successful oval events. So do you invest all the money for big-name concert acts? You have to have someone underwriting that, like Menards or someone uh, like hy V does with Iowa to make that work. But I'm optimistic they'll give it a try, and I think Penske would be sort of a co-promoter potentially like they've done in Iowa uh, so they can get all of their muscle behind it as well. So I hope it happens. All right, what clearly is working is anything that Alex Pillow is doing. Um, I've been around long enough for the season – this reminds me of was what Dan Weldon did in 05. Um, he always put an asterisk what happens in 2020, which Scott Dixon with limited track time and opportunity was so dominant. Where do you begin to describe the season that, that Polo and the 10 team are having at this point? And I think that's a good point that it's more than just Polo, who is clearly a special talent. There's a reason why, I think it was a year ago today, where two teams announced he would be <laughs> right. driving for them next year. <laughs> Um, so there's a reason why his services are being sought after, and he might have an opportunity in Formula One next year. But the team is also so strong, and they're not missing anything. Every pit stop is flawless. Strategy is flawless. And Pelot is really fast, but what he's better at is just racing, meaning he doesn't have to have the fastest car, but he is the fastest over a stint. He manages the tires well. He makes smart decisions Townsend Bell calls him the professor, and I, I think that's accurate. And, you know, we have been blessed with the championship going down to the final race every year for almost 20 years. It's not going to happen this year. <laughs> He's going to have it wrapped up way in advance. And that's my next question. What would have to happen for him to not win the championship at this point? Lots of DNFs. Uh, and it starts with this weekend, because this is one with a street race with concrete walls where it doesn't take a whole lot for you to finish 25th, 26th, 27th. Uh, and then now he's still going to have an 80 or 90 point lead. He's still going to have a two race lead, even if he finishes last in this event. But then you have a couple of ovals. And if you crash in the first Iowa race, uh, and then it's a doubleheader, another race the next day, it's difficult to get the car repaired exactly, handling well. So you might have a lost week in there and finish in the back. You've got one more oval at Gateway coming up. He's good there, but he's not as good as he is at the other places. So that's the scenario. It really has to start right now with some really bad luck, either mechanicals uh, or being caught up in a mess. I think at the beginning of the season, the assumption was is that Alex Pillow is in the IndyCar circuit next year driving a McLaren. Um, there obviously has been a lot of conversation, I'm sure a lot of it behind the scenes and, and some chatter that we're subjected to in terms of social media, et cetera. Where do you think Alex is driving next year at this point, Kevin? I think he's probably at McLaren. There's a possibility he's at Formula One, um, but they generally just don't regard IndyCar drivers all that highly. And it's developing this week. Uh, one of the seats that we knew was, we thought was going to be open is the second seat at Alpha Torre, which is a Red Bull junior team, because we thought Nick DeVries was going to be out after one year. Well, it turns out Nick DeVries is out right now. Yep. And Daniel Ricardo replaced him. Now, that does not eliminate Pelot's opportunity there. If Ricardo does not do well, he won't be invited back next year. If he does really, really well, he might replace Sergio Perez right. as Max Verstappen's teammate at Red Bull. And that seat is open up again. And in this case, it would be McLaren actually hurting themselves because they've been putting him in a Formula One car 
and word has spread that Polo is really good. So it's not just based on him stomping IndyCar competition. That's not enough to impress anyone in the Formula One world. He needs to be in that car. He did a free practice one last year, so they've seen that he's he's solid. So I think there's a chance. Maybe there's another one or two opportunities over there. And even though many would say, why would you go run 14th <laughs> when you can win championships here? He's from Spain. He's from Europe. The Formula One world is what he knows and there's only going to be one chance to do that. So if it is offered to him, no matter how bad the seat is, I suspect he will take it, understanding that he can come back to IndyCar if and when that does not work out. How do you balance that if you're IndyCar? Because obviously you want to acknowledge you know, you know, know, Formula One, but there are elements where you're trying to compete with yeah. them. And, and obviously so much of, of, of 100 Days to Indy was, hey, this is the, this is the version of, of Drive to Survive. How do you walk that, that balance of acknowledging Formula One, yet trying to differentiate yourself from it if you're IndyCar? I don't know if they know how they want to acknowledge that because a good percentage of the fan base doesn't get that and gets really annoyed when drivers start talking about leaving and going to Formula One for rides that are outside of the top 10. And I think it probably irks management as well when drivers get so excited about a testing opportunity and talk about how cool those cars are. But that is something that needs to be discussed and navigated to try to use it to their benefit. I think that the current popularity of Formula One does positively impact IndyCar because it exposes people to that type of racing. And then when they find out they cannot afford to go to that type of race, (laughs) we have something that's very similar, similar And actually, the winner is not predetermined, uh, and you can get up close and and do a lot of different things for a fraction of of the cost. So I think there are benefits there, but it it is a tricky slope to be able to deal with. What's uh, what's on the show tonight, my friend? Uh, A lot of this. We'll talk about Toronto. We'll talk about what they're doing at the IMS Museum. Uh, Big upgrades there that is really taking it to the next generation. So I'm curious learning more about that. Uh, silly season where drivers are going to be next year really starts with Polo until we know what he's doing because if he doesn't go to McLaren then someone else probably is so who's that going to be is it going to be Marcus Erickson who's a free agent there's some Grosjean his contract is up Andretti has a couple of openings Ganassi has three so that's all developing right now behind the scenes again uh, trackside a Wednesday edition from seven to nine um, what's the next update for Jackson Lee Racing, by the way? What's the next race for him? Uh, TBD until we find more money. Right now he's injured and he will miss the uh, Toronto race because uh. kids with uh, wealthier parents keep running into him <laughs> and aren't concerned about crash damage. So he's been taken out of, I think, four of the last six races. Uh, and I would say one, maybe it's five of seven. Two, he potentially could have helped avoid three he had no control over it as well so added crash damage uh, ran out our budget he wouldn't have been able to go this weekend or not so we're looking for new partners to see if he can do the final two weekends of the year uh, and then we'd like to do the same series with the same team next year turn three motorsports is really good and he's been quick in their cars so we're hoping we're hoping he can do that again race commentator by weekend race dad by evening and other parts of his calendar kevin lee kind enough to give us 15 minutes around the fan thanks buddy enjoy the show tonight